As human trafficking and modern slavery become more publicized, international companies must work to assess their risks and manage those risks through a human rights strategy. But this is something compliance professionals do every day. They manage risk. So I believe compliance is uniquely suited to lead this corporate effort. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Today, I want to take things in a little bit different direction because I want to talk about the role of compliance in creating a human rights strategy. Obviously, this is a part of an overall ESG program, and the compliance intersection with ESG continues to drive many initiatives in both the ESG realm as well as compliance. One of the key areas found in corporate supply chain, particularly around human rights, human trafficking, and modern slavery as well, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act puts additional pressure on companies who do business with China to be able to affirmatively show no goods or services were produced through forced labor involving the Chinese Uyghur population, much to the consternation of the Chinese government. Most compliance professionals depend on language and supplier contracts, which certify that no products which are produced are the result of slave labor. In the New York Times, it reported one of the biggest hurdles for U.S. businesses is determining whether their products touch any part of this in their supply chain. Many companies complain that their direct suppliers only have, and they only have direct knowledge of demand from information in Chinese firms who provide this voluntarily. However, this most basic approach is no longer adequate. In a recent Sloan Management Review article entitled, Does Your Business Need a Human Rights Strategy? The authors took a solid look at both the risk side of this equation as well as developing a corporate strategy to deal with the human rights issue. While the Chinese response may be painful to U.S. businesses, it will frankly pale next to the response from the United States government and, more importantly, the buying public. With so much increased attention to human rights, the authors believe that businesses that turn a blind eye to violations that occur in their sphere of operations face the risk of being exposed as morally complicit as well as are vulnerable to reputational harm, and quote. That's why it's critical for companies to have a human rights strategy and take into account a variety of stakeholders, i.e. shareholders, customers, employees, and indeed other stakeholders as well. The authors begin with three categories of human rights violations. Number one, human rights abuse in the way companies' products are made or delivered. This includes human rights abuses by suppliers or contractors or within a company's own operations. Although most Western companies believe this is not a problem for them, the UK investigation found slave labor operations within the country itself, which are supplying food products to such UK retailers at Tesco, Sainsbury, and others. Frankly, if you look at your supply chain within 30 miles of your corporate headquarters, you may be shocked to find the same issue. Number two, abuse in a way companies' products or services are used. This includes companies that find themselves complicit when companies or rather customers employ their products or services to do so, if not legally complicit, and at least guilty in the court of public opinion. The obvious example here is digital systems sold to Chinese securities agencies 
and urged, or rather used, to implement mass surveillance programs against minority groups and creating an overall surveillance state within the country. Number three, human rights abuse by regimes where the company operates. This may be one of the trickiest to navigate. Obviously, working with governments is an important business component, but even working with the U.S. government can be tricky, as McKinsey found out when it contracted with U.S. Customs and Borders and, quote, media reports suggested that the consultancy had been redirected to assist former President Trump's clampdown on illegal immigration and was responsible for such money-saving recommendations that cut funding for food, medical care, and supervision of detainees in, quote, clearly human rights abuses. So what are some of the obligations to address human rights? Well, both compliance and ESG have driven the discussion on the role of corporations in dealing with this issue. The Business Roundtable's statement on the purpose of a corporation also pointed in this direction. Companies are now being called upon to engage as responsible corporate citizens in a wide variety of areas, including human rights. The authors see four reasons why a company should consider a human rights a priority. Number one, moral reasons. The fight against human trafficking and slavery are moral duties that require not simply a call for action, but real action. In other words, inaction is no longer acceptable. Number two, legal considerations. Together with the U.S., multiple Western companies have enacted laws that require organizations to act in ways that protect and promote human rights. Three, soft laws. Many standards have come into play, such as the United States, or rather the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights, and they're becoming much more important. And four, of course, reputation. With social media amplifying human trafficking and other human rights issues, which have become more inconspicuous than in the past, is making businesses increasingly vulnerable to being accused of complicity. The authors have developed an approach which identifies key factors driving, quote, corporate human rights strategies and use them to create an exposure, in quote, scale. The tool includes both the moral intensity and potential influence a company has on a specific situation. Understanding where your organization lies on the scale can assist a CCO or compliance professional not only to lead the discussion in your organization, but more importantly, to formulate a corporate response. The twin axes are moral intensity and influence. Moral intensity captures the degree to which people see the situation as unethical and demanding. Some of the questions you need to consider include what is the magnitude of the consequences, the extent of the harm likely to result, the social consensus, the extent to which people agree on the moral rights and wrongs of the issue, what is the probability of the effect and how likely is harm to happen, what is the, quote, temporal immediacy in quote, how urgent is the issue? How fast are you required to take action? And how near is your organization to the issue? And what is your stakeholder community? And how will they be affected? The authors believe, however, that influence is even trickier. They believe a nuanced approach should be used when assessing an organization's influence. Their approach includes reviewing institutional factors and understanding what are the formal and informal rules and values that shape the environment, the pressure, or to conform. Next, you should look at industry specifics to help understand how influence is affected by factors such as complexity of supply chains, the geographic location where vital products are sourced, the degree to of concentration or fragmentation of the industry. From your review of resources to help understand what the organization brings to bear. Such a review could work at tangible resources such as funds, inventory, land, etc., as well as intangible ones such as network skills, and knowledge. Finally, consider embeddedness, which the authors defined as, quote, how closely and on how many levels is the company engaged with the perpetrators of the abuse. Next, we're going to turn to crafting a 
or rather using the assessment we talked about to help you craft a strategy. There are three key decisions you need to begin with to help you make a determination on strategy, then execute on that strategy. Decision one, should you exit, voice, or stay silent? The most basic level, the most initial decision a company must make is whether to get involved. The authors believe that business leaders must decide whether the issue requires further attention and possibly action. Is it serious enough to warn divesting operations or possibly leaving the country? If not, what are the other options available? They caution that this calculus is not always straightforward and nor is fleeing from a country almost the appropriate action as pulling out of a country can not only serious impact a company's bottom line, but it also can harm the communities in which it operates, such as by eliminating local jobs or ending pro-social initiatives that the company may have engaged in. However, in the event that an organization makes the choice to continue operating and continue to work to address systemic human rights abuses within its environment, it needs to develop a nuanced strategy and be very deliberate on how and with whom it interacts. Decision two, collective or individual approach. The authors believe that if a company chooses to stay and take action, it must decide whether the issue is best addressed by the company individually or should be done undertaking collectively with other organizations or stakeholders. At times, such an individual approach can be effective if the company is large enough to have an influence and can act with expedience. Conversely, smaller organizations may team up with other companies or even other stakeholders. For the latter situation, the authors pointed to the reaction of companies in the garment sector after the 2012 Rana Plaza tragedy in Bangladesh offers an example of collective action. Companies in the sector worked together to introduce the Accord on Fire and Building Safety in Bangladesh, an independent legally binding agreement formed among global bands, brands rather, retailers and trade unions. Since the Accord's creation, engineers have inspected more than 2,000 garment factories and addressed more than 150,000 safety hazards and helped set up safety and training programs that have educated more than 1.4 million workers in proper workplace safety practices. Decision three, which actions and tactics should be chosen? The next decision moves into execution. Should an organization take direct action to stop human rights violations or whether more can be done indirectly or influencing the institutional settings in which they operate? In the Ronnie Plaza response, the indirect strategy proved effective But if ready-made garment brands have become aware that a particular factory presents an extreme and urgent threat to life, they may have instead chosen to take direct action, such as putting pressure on politicians or legal enforcement agencies to close or force repairs to buildings. So what are some of the tactics that you can employ? Well, they could be direct or indirect. In the direct tactics camp, the authors provide three examples. Number one, a company can provide information about human rights abuses. Number two, Organizations can decide whom to provide financial aid to in the fight for human rights. Finally, businesses can engage in certain activities, or rather additionally, businesses can engage in certain activities or decline to participate in commercial tactics. Under indirect tactics, the authors also list three strategies. A, companies can work to strengthen and otherwise support NGO or other similar organizations fighting human rights abuses. B, businesses can sign up for international initiatives such as the UN Compact on Climate Change or NGO efforts to fight human trafficking and modern slavery, such as those forward by the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. Finally, C, organizations can work to develop solely or in conjunction with others, quote, new standards with supplementary hard law. 
by acting collectively or alongside other multi-stakeholder initiatives, organizations can individually create rules of the game that define guardrails for corporate behavior, in quote. However, sometimes even the, the most, most robust risk analysis and defined strategy, a company makes a decision that it must leave. The authors believe there may be times in balancing the tension between moral and business imperative. Leaders feel that the best or only choice for the company is to leave, be it a problematic supply chain, a market where its products are implicated in human rights abuses, or even the entire country. This decision will be whether to take the high road or to exit with fanfare to publicly signal their position. This happened with many energy companies and the country of Venezuela in the last decade. Obviously, you can look at what happened to Venezuela and you can see that by energy companies not being there, it really did hurt the Venezuelan economy and more importantly, the Venezuelan people. But the risks were staying there under the Venezuelan strongman regimes of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro were simply too great. But this is not a phenomenon of 10 years ago. Indeed, even last week, two big energy companies exited Myanmar over human rights abuses by the military government. NPR reported that Total Energy and Chevron, two of the world's largest energy companies, said they were stopping all operations in the country, citing rampant human rights abuses and the deteriorating rule of law the country's military takeover overthrew uh, the elected government in February 2021. The announcement came just a day after the French company called for an international sanctions targeting the oil and gas sector, which remains the military government's primary source of funding. It also came a month after the Associated Press story of a growing push for oil and gas companies to do so, and indeed even resistance from the U.S. Total and Chevron had uh, come under increasing pressure for their role in a massive gas field owned by Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, MOGE, and a Thailand entity. Totals had a majority stake in the venture and ran its operations on behalf of the government. So these two examples, I think, really drive home that many companies do make the decision to leave. It's not one that you can or should take lightly, but it may be there are times when you simply just have to because the pressure is too great. The bottom line is that doing nothing is no longer an option. As human trafficking and modern slavery become more publicized, international companies must work to assess their risks and manage those risks through a human rights strategy. But this is something compliance professionals do every day. They manage risk. So I believe compliance is uniquely suited to lead this corporate effort. The authors end their piece by stating, quote, companies are increasingly expected to assume political responsibilities. Doing nothing when there is an arsenal of options available might be easily interpreted, rather, as a minimum as silently being complicit with human rights violations. I think that this falls not only directly within the sphere of the compliance function, but also in your ESG sphere as well. So having a human rights policy, having policies dealing with human trafficking and modern slavery are directly within what you should be doing for not only your compliance program, but also for your ESG program.